to The Art Dealer Show, a podcast about the people who sell art and for the people who sell art. My name is Danny Stern, and this is part two of our interview with gallery owner Jeff Jaffe, owner of Pop International Galleries in New York City. And if you haven't had the chance, please make sure to uh, take a listen to the part one of this. The stories in it are unbelievable and truly insightful. And it's a whole different type of interview. The entire first part is about how Jeff really got it, found his way into the business, what the, his foundation was, what made him the art dealer that he is today. And I think for anybody who's interested in this business or is a part of it, you'll find it fascinating. It's not your typical story, as most none of them are, and it's worth a listen. You might even want to take a moment to listen to episode 00, uh, that's the introduction to this whole podcast and kind of explains the ideas behind it and what we hope it's going to become. And I think it's worth a listen as well. And since we're going back, I, I want to take you I want to take you way, way back to a story that puts the theme into this podcast and uh, perhaps even the entire series itself in many respects. When I was 17 growing up in Culver City, California, there was a neighboring part of town called Fox Hills. Still is. But at that time, Fox Hills was, for the most part, unpopulated. At least one specific section. It was a strip of road that ran along many lots. And those lots were all zoned for commercial purposes. And for as long as I had been living there, that place had gone completely undeveloped. And for the entire year and a half of my driving experience, you could shoot down that street without any worries at all, particularly if it was late at night. Well, one night, I, uh, I got taken by surprise. Uh, what I had not noticed until the very moment that I had passed through it, the city had taken it upon themselves to put in a traffic light. A police officer had stationed himself at that light, probably in the anticipation that he was going to catch a lot of people this first week. Now, I don't know what it's like in your state, but in California, at least back then, if you are under 18 and you get a traffic violation, you have to go in front of a judge. So there I stood in front of the judge, and I pled no contest with an explanation. And I told him my story. I told him about the neighborhood that I grew up in. I told him about how years and years had gone by with no changes whatsoever about how I had developed a pattern based upon the layout that the city had given me on that street of no signs and no lights, and about how no announcement had been made whatsoever about how this was going to change, and how in the middle of the night I really could not be expected to have adjusted to this quickly, but the fact is now I know about the light, and I assured him that it would never happen again. And the judge smiled. And there was a little gleam in his eye, I have to say, and, and then he began to speak. And as he smiled, and as he nodded a little bit, and he started with Mr. Stern, and I knew from experience when, when people typically started with Mr. Stern, uh, it wasn't going to be a good piece of information. He said, Mr. Stern, he said, you are young, but you will learn in life as you proceed through it, as Things happen around you, and I know many, many will, and you'll have many adventures along the way. You will find that there is one, one consistent thing that you can look forward to, and that consistent thing is that things will change. I didn't know it at the time, 
but he, with that little piece of information, probably gave me the best piece of information to instruct me on what it is to be in our business today, what it is to be in our business, period. It's actually become a bit of a theme in this entire podcast. As I've done the many interviews so far, uh, and I know you haven't heard them, there has been many that I've already put in the can. That is something that comes up over and over and over again, that things change. They change with slow evolution, and sometimes they change as abruptly as a car crash. They change. And I know it from the emails that I've already started to get in response to the first episode, where people commented on the one thing that they want me to continue to talk about, the one thing that they think is at the heart of both what our industry is and particularly where it is now, that things change, that they change a lot. If there is a skill that is at the center of our business, if there is one defining quality in any professional who's in this industry who sells art, no matter how they do it or in what form, whether in a gallery or on the telephone, that things change. That is the one thing that defines those who survive from those who become roadkill, that they are the ones who are able to adapt that they are the ones who are able to evolve as the world around them evolves. As quickly or as slowly as that takes place, things change. And in a small way, that is the bit of news that I have to share with you today. That between last week's episode, and I get it, last week's episode was really last month. Hey, we're new. We're just getting started. Between that last episode and this, Things changed a lot in the world of Jeff Jaffe. Jeff has changed location. Jeff has moved along after nearly 20 years of being on West Broadway in Soho, New York. Jeff has moved to the Bowery. Now, it's not as simple as a move. You know, he'll be the first to tell you it could not have happened at a better time. Rents were getting crazy. And if there's one thing that's a big problem in our business, the nature of where rents are going in high traffic areas do not match with the basic numbers of our industry. And that's something I know we're going to be talking about a lot as we go on with this uh, series of podcasts. But beautifully, as sometimes it happened, an opportunity fell into the lap of Jeff. A fantastic space at a fantastic rent and allowed him to move into the now booming Bowery. Congratulations, Jeff. I had mentioned that we've been getting a lot of emails since that first episode went out. And in them, there is a question that has come up a number of times, and that is, hey, Danny, are you thinking of getting any sponsors? And the answer to that question is, hell yeah, we're going to get some sponsors. But not just any. We are going to get sponsors that fit what we do. And the first one is perhaps the best example I could possibly think about, and that is Relevant Communications. Now, if you're not familiar with Relevant Communications and their owner-founder, Allison Zucker-Perlman, well, what rock have you been under? No, I'm, I'm kidding. But seriously, you should know about these people. Relevant Communications is one PR firm that is truly specialized on our business specifically. They work almost solely 
with art galleries and artists and distributors and publishers and everybody else who's involved with our industry. Allison Zucker Perlman and her firm, Relevant Communications, is the first card in my Rolodex, and I like to think of them as yours too now. If you have any projects coming up that are going to need a gifted hand in publicity, take the time to go over to relevantcommunications.com, give them a phone call, and find out what they can do for you and your company. A lot of these episodes that you're going to get to hear in the future, along with this one, well, they've been recorded right in the very galleries that the people who I'm interviewing work or own. And in the case of Jeff Jaffe, this is not an exception. I noted this in the first part that we were having the conversation in the office down in the basement of uh, his gallery space, now formerly on West Broadway. And like in a lot of galleries in the basement, what you're going to find, along with potentially the bookkeeper, is the packing department. And with that comes its own set of noise. You're going to hear a sound at the very beginning. And if you've ever packed anything, you're going to recognize it immediately. It's the sound of a tape gun going around boxes. And then you're going to hear later on in the episode uh, the sound of some kind of hissing and whining, and well, that is the sound that any New Yorker is familiar with of what the pipes in the basement of a New York building sounds like, particularly a building that's been around for over a hundred years. Very alive, very much with moods of its own. So I hope you forgive that. I like to think it adds to the character and the reality of the type of show that we're putting on. I hope it doesn't distract you at all. It certainly didn't distract Jeff, because he goes on to tell us more of his incredible story and continues on with some incredible wisdom and insights into our field. And with that, I take you to part two with Jeff Jaffe in his now former gallery in West Broadway, having moved to the Bowery. Enjoy. Look, I hired somebody who I bought my car from. (laughs) because she was so good. So what do you think makes a good salesperson? It's the ability to listen and to overcome objections. That simple. Mm -hmm. Well, besides the initial thing of qualifying the person as to whether this is someone who who can afford to buy a piece of art and that you should um, afford spending your valuable time with. We We have a little thing in this gallery about Art consultants should be like sharks, but not sharks in that negative sense of what a shark is. What a shark does is it it swims around the ocean, and if it bumps into a log, it knows immediately it's not food, and he moves on and until he bumps into something that's food. So he qualifies his way through the ocean until he gets what he needs. And it is a numbers game. In the end, this is a numbers game. The more people you speak to, the mm-hmm. more people you listen to, the more people you qualify, the more people you show material to the more people you communicate with the 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 more sales you're going to make always have been and 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 always will be yeah i think it's there's kind of two conflicting numbers games going on that was my first observation when i started which was definitely this is about volume and you know back 25 years ago one of the first things i did was develop a database for my customers, you know, because I just figured I need as many tools as possible to stay in contact with as many people as possible. 
And then I had this conversation with a guy who was uh, my director at the time. And it was about that concept of numbers. And I don't remember exactly what brought it. Oh, that was it. He had behind his desk, because at that time it was very analog, and the way that we would have our list of customers. His Rolodex. Well, no, we had all the uh, invoice slips. So there were like three or four copies, and one of the copies would go to the art dealer. Yeah, we st- I still do that, by the way. Okay. So that was kind of your client card. I still do right. that. Yeah, you got to have it in a real thing that can be managed at some point. So being that he was the director, he had many, many, many notebooks of this. I mean, three three you know ring binders. Sure. And me being relatively new, I had my little pamphlets worth of these things in my little binder. And I was envious. And I pointed, I go, man, I can't wait till I can get to the point where I've got all of that. And he just laughed. And he pulled from the desk it was like i think it was actually you know the sliding trays from the desk this little tiny thin version of a softbound notebook and he goes that's my business that is correct right there and he says all of that he goes yeah come Absolutely. go and he says this little thing probably 80 percent of the money i've ever made in this gallery absolutely yeah absolutely absolutely so it's almost two parallel numbers games You've got to create those kinds in of order to In order yeah. to get those 50 clients that you mm-hmm. deal with on a regular basis that really serve you well, you've got to speak to 500 or whatever it is that you've got to get to over a period of time. I always, the, the, the index card, that used to be a system people used a lot. Yeah, I came on the index cards. I would tell people you would everything you'd alphabetize by artist not by by client un- until you sold them so if if something new came in by an artist then you could pull all your artists out the, all those people who were interested in that artist and then if somebody bought it then that card came out of the artist file and in, into the right. the client index card file and at any given time whether you had a thousand or ten thousand index cards that you were working with. The reality is, you would probably be working with twenty or thirty, um, a little tiny pile of of cards in any, at any given time. And we would, and I would teach people how to rate those from a, a one a one to five. One being hot, five being lukewarm. Um, if they were cold, they shouldn't have been yeah. there to begin with. Um, and the idea was to get five to become a four and a four to become a three and a three to become a two or a two become a one. And then a one earned his position in your client box. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it was sales. It is sales, you know, and, and I'm proud about that, you know, to teach people how to sort of n- n- navigate through that especially in New York, because there's so many people. And now this gallery has thousands of people that walk through it. Yeah, but to somebody who hasn't walked in our shoes, that might sound as a very cold and superficial thing. But I think to anybody that's done this job, they know all of those cards you're talking about. Well, hang on. All all those cards represent real relationships. Yes, they do. I mean, they represent, and you can't be bullshit. No. You know what I mean? You have to have to be a genuine person and really give a damn about what you're doing before you could actually have created those cards that sit in the back as your real client. We we talk about earning someone's business a lot. Selling a piece of art here is not a God given right. It's something that you earn. I we I genuinely believe that. And I have friendships and relationships with customers that are decades old. And, you know, for those consultants who remain for a while, had those relationships. 
I think I had a weird an experience. Actually, it's probably not so weird um, that no one ever talks about, which is I had the chops to develop those kind of relationships before I had the professional maturity to manage those relationships. Yeah. And I think there was a time period where I was earning them. They were coming in and I was getting them and I was not executing them at the level in which well, they deserved fault, that to would be have executed been a fault at. of your manager. That would have been a fault yeah. of your director or the person who was sort of overseeing you to some degree. You know, that that's really what we do. It's what I do. I think some of it was dealt, dealt with well. I just think there's always going to be that awkward in between yeah. stage too. You know, and at some point, you know, your manager can't run the relationship no. for you. You have to be the one on the phone with the customer. Or although although like we that. do have the notion here as well of the TO has another, the turnover has another application here. Yeah. When you reach a certain point and you say to yourself, okay, I'm really close, but I'm just not close enough to close this deal. I'm going to go get someone else. And you turn it over to somebody else. It could be a colleague if the director or the owner or someone's not around. And you turn it over and they reinforce what you've said. And next thing you have a sale. I want to just, speaking about that, if I may, this is a technique that we developed at this gallery. We have no shares. We don't split sales at all. Salespeople here do not split sales. If you're off on a Tuesday and your client comes in and Billy Bob lands up picking up your client and makes a sale, you come to, to work on Wednesday morning and there's a sale written in your name. That's mm-hmm. just the way it works here. And we do it for everybody. Everybody does it for everybody else. And everybody derives this immense amount of team it's team building and a lot of pleasure. This is We derive this immense amount of pleasure. Um, should we call him and tell him that we got his deal for him? Or should he come in in the morning and just see it written? You know, that kind of team effort. So we split no sales ever. I can honestly say in, in all the years that this gallery has been around, I think the, the amount of sales that are split, I can count on one hand, and they were done not through bookkeeping here. It was worked out between the people themselves, and they, and they, and they knew. Even that's almost better. It is better. I had a boss once that used to have a line on that. He said, split deals makes for split art dealers. Correct. That's, and, I've and, never heard that. It makes perfect sense to me. Because you've already started this kind of thing. And also, you're starting to dictate a behavior that, that will catch up with well, you eventually. Well, then it becomes so much more competitive. Exactly. Now, That's the behavior now, now I'm talking about. Competition is a good... I, there's nothing yeah. wrong with competition. You know, I love the fact that Michael's like running like incredible numbers right now. And that we have a younger person who's catching up. But either of them would drop anything to help either of each other. It's really an interesting thing to, to witness here, how the culture has sort of developed here in a way where, yes, it's competitive and I want to be number one, but your client comes in, I'm going to close them for you because A, it's gallery first, and B, you do the same for me. And that's a culture that I think many galleries could and should adopt. I think there's a lot of experienced salespeople, who, art consultants who come in are not used to that. They're not used to that as a concept, and I have to sort of retrain them. You know, we, we have our you know, re-education program. <laughs> you know, you also get this thing where good art dealers, you know, success, you know, art dealers actually just make a living. They're very smart people. Yeah. And any system you create becomes the thing that eventually be, has to be worked. What I mean is 
when you create a structure that can be gamed, that's where the energy winds up going eventually. You know, I, I get to see many different forms of how to run a gallery because of my position of working with so many galleries around the world. And the ones that have the splits inevitably, not always, but eventually and inevitably, have an art dealer that will come in and figure out that's the game they can win. They can be the guy, maybe they can't start a sale, maybe they can't finish a sale, you know, maybe they can't maintain relationships with clients, maybe they can't learn the material, but they know how to pick up on closable deals when other art dealers are away, and that becomes their stock and trade. Correct. And, and, so we, and as soon as that guy is in your mix, then everything toxic. is toxic. Exactly. Because right. toxic. I've worked in many a toxic environment in my life, and we have worked incredibly hard. I don't think I have ever, in all the years, that the, honestly, that this gallery has been open, I don't think I've ever seen consultants fighting over a, over a sale. Because it's just not part of our culture. And the, the, the term gallery first is something that we drill into everybody who works. So you can just ask anybody when you go upstairs or you ask them, what does gallery first mean? And they'll smile. They know exactly what it means. It means getting the deal done and then just working it out afterwards. Yep, of course it was your client. I know. They were in here on the weekend and you were off on Tuesday. I did it for you, you know. It, it, it's a wonderful thing to see. In I've also great. seen that same thing poorly managed, though. Well, because here's where you get the other side of it. You're, you're unfortunately, you're making it work because you're making sure that it's a universal thing and you're putting an emphasis on where the positive aspects of that attitude is. I've seen it managed where it's, all right, we're doing no splits, but there's no ethos behind it. Right. So there's no sense of ownership of that concept right. or pride in it. And what you get is, and I've seen this firsthand, where a client will come in that's ready to make their purchase and the art dealer is gone for the day. It just needs a little bit more work. And then there's a scramble on the floor because no one wants to give up their uptime. And the director didn't happen to be there at the moment, maybe to jump in. And, and, and the collector literally stands there as everybody starts passing it around as so a hot this potato. So is, this is a complete and utter failure in management. It is. And what I love to see actually is not they're making a deal afterwards. Thanks for doing this for me. You know, here's 50 bucks or 100 bucks. They'll buy each other lunch. Mm-hmm. Let me buy you, you know, I'll get you lunch today. But Thank you know, you. a lot of management, unlike you or I, haven't done the job. Yeah, that's true. And that's usually where it goes wrong. Yeah, I mean, we've come up through the ranks and we sort of know what it means. Yeah, and we've seen the bad versions of the good versions and we know what motivates ourselves. What do you think motivates art dealers in general, though? Well, I think what motivates anybody who's in sales is not the money, but the sale itself. Mm -hmm. I get just as excited writing a $1,000 sale as I do a $25,000 sale. I get that feeling, that adrenaline or whatever it is that that courses through your veins when you say, ah, got it, you know? I think that is what motivates a really good salesperson. I don't think money itself motivates good salespeople. Yes, they're in it to make money and everybody's got to make a living and we live in a capitalist society and that's the nature of the beast. But I think the most successful salespeople are the ones who you can just see in their eyes the excitement of having closed a deal. I see, again, I go back to Michael who, who works for me, who, who he the, the look in his face when he closes something and the high-fiving and the, the you know, sort of the hoo-hoos and the whatever it is that people do are not motivated so much by the size of the sale or how much commission he's going to make. 
what is motivating is setting goals, you know, what's realistic. Um, okay, you did X amount last month. Do you think you could do X amount this month? Could you repeat it? Could you, you know, get close to it? Could you double it? I you know, mean, I have to it? confess, I hated that part. I had directors who would have that same conversation with me. And uh, and what I hated about it was, and, and I'm only saying this so you can contradict me yeah, and yeah. tell me where I'm wrong. And having been a director probably longer than I was even a floor dealer. And my thought that was always going on in my head as my director would say, what could you do this month is, how the hell should I know who's going to walk in the door of this gallery this month? Okay, so I'm going or what to con- our artists are going to release. So what new release is going to come out? Right. Or, so you know, right. It's a combination yeah. of what you're provided with. So I say, if I'm going to provide you with the tools that you need, okay, I the the the, the, the very often we talk about what this place is because they're commissioned salespeople, right? I have a huge responsibility as an owner of a gallery to provide the tools that make it possible. So to put an art consultant in a situation where he or she is unable to reach goals because you're not providing the facility for that to happen is is just moronic. It's an idiotic, it's bullshit. And what you have to be able to do in an absolutely honest and forthright manner is to say, be able to say with a clear conscience, boys and girls, I am providing you with an opportunity, a real opportunity, to be able to make a living that's meaningful and fun. And I'm providing you with all the tools and all the equipment and all the stuff that's necessary for you to do that. And that includes, obviously, a place to work, a place to sit, a computer and a telephone, digital, whatever it is that we need to be able to get through to our clients. I have great art on the wall. I have art that we know people want to buy. We don't have a sales meeting every single week. We have, I have them contempor- you know, sort of contemporary, uh, sort of on a contemporaneous basis periodically. It's quiet. Guys, hey, let's have a quickie. Sit down for 15 minutes and go through some things. Um, anyone having any problems with anything? Let's see if anyone can help. You know, we talk about where you might be struggling closing a sale or you might, you know, why is this person not responding? And you had success with a similar thing, you know, two months ago. What was it that you were able to do to help at a certain level? But at the same time, we do talk about numbers because it's a business. This isn't a playground. There's huge expenses involved, massive rents and taxes and insurance and all the stuff that salespeople tend not to have to be concerned about. So we, we talk about goals in the sense of what is attainable and how can I help you? And so this notion of helping people to become successful as a, as a leader, because that's what I believe a business owner is, is to provide an environment that allows people to grow and attain what it is that they seek to attain at the same time without feeling like the whip is being cracked. You know what's kind of funny? You know, I've, you're my sixth interview going into this. So. I am. I thought it was your first. <sighs> you made it feel like my first. Here so, is, is there a consistency in any of this? Or? There is, and it's 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 one that's kind of plexing me and frustrating me a little bit. This has been a really good interview, but I think one of the things that's always driven me in this business and has caught my best interest and in why I went into it was I was always fascinated by the people itself and the dynamic of dealing with them. And it starts with the most basic question, which is, why would people buy a piece of artwork? 
and then it gets really complicated. I actually and, don't think it's complicated at all. Well, okay, we can get into that in a minute. And there's a lot of aspects of different ways to communicate with people on different occasions, and that all relates to that same psychology of whatever their motivating factors are. I think it's part of the challenge of the business where it is today, because I think as climate changes in culture, so does the answer to that question a little bit, at least the context of it. And I've had many conversations with people, not just in this series of interviews, but in my entire career in our profession. And I've been taken by how rarely topics about that, and I think you could spend the rest of your life exploring that, comes up. No, You're shaking your head. I am. Because yeah, I you think, think it's, it's a simple thing. I think thing. it's the simplest thing on the planet. All right, go for it. And it has to do with two things. And I can, because I sit on both sides of the fence. I'm an artist, I went to art school, and I'm an art dealer, and I'm an art gallery. So I think that most people, buy art because they love art. They love it. It's not because they need it. There's a, there's a, it's like, we, we, I always often, we often say it's like falling in love. You know, why do you like this piece of art more over that piece of art? You know, why did you marry that guy when you could have married that guy? You know, it's a subjective, personal, visceral, inexplicable, intangible, I mean, I could go on with adjectives ad infinitum about why people make choices that are emotional. Buying art in the, in, in the market in which I operate, I'm not talking about people who have $100 million and want to invest in art. I'm talking about the, the, the young couple that come in and they've got 20 grand or 15 grand or $10,000 and they've got a new house and they've got a, a sofa and, 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 you know, they want to put something in the, in and the art has to function in their life and it, it has to function in their life in a certain way that derives a certain amount of pleasure for them. And, and as I say this, look at, I kid you not, I get goosebumps 35 years in, I still get goosebumps when somebody gets emotional standing in front of a piece of art. You don't need to know a lot about art other than that you love it or you like it or it makes you feel something or you have a visceral reaction or you, there's some gut thing that says, you know, this will look lovely in my house and I can wake up in the morning and open the curtains and say, ah, oh, I really had such fun buying that piece of art or, you know, when we were in New York, I'm from Switzerland and when I was in New York and I, and I met Daniel, and he was selling this piece of art to me, and we had such a wonderful experience, and the holiday was beautiful, and and I, you know, the, to me, that's what buying a piece of art is all about in this market. But to 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 have somebody stand in front of a piece of art who's who I have the privilege of having had walk into my gallery and started chatting with them and sort of opening them up and trying to find out what is and listening to what it is that they're saying. And, or we weren't even thinking about buying a piece of art in the first place. How many times have you heard that? Oh, sure. A million times. But, and I think it comes from this bourgeoisie uh, childhood of my own that it fascinates me from. I grew up in a family of artists. Not too different than your experience. I went to art school myself. Okay. And... I don't think we ever bought a piece of artwork. I don't think they've ever bought a piece of artwork. Nothing more than something token. Well, a lot of artists won't dollars. buy other people's artwork. You know, we tr I traded. That was one of the things we did as yeah. young artists. We traded with each other. So I have a sort of a, a really eclectic collection. Um, I, the, uh, talk that's why I'm saying it's not as simple as just, you know, you couldn't love artwork more, right? I mean, not only do they love artwork, but so much so that it defines part of their 
a important and big part of their lives. Uh, but yet it's not the same thing as making the choice to buy it. It's also, I think it's complicated by who's the person who's loving the art. They're not all the same person. Well, look, with the a same good experience. salesperson is always, you know, going to have a profound effect on helping somebody to love a piece of art. That's what a good salesperson is able to do. On, on the other hand, I don't think your average collector or your average buyer is going to walk into a piece, a gallery and buy a piece of art that they don't like. I just don't think that that's going to happen. Very it often. shouldn't happen. It, 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 it's, it just, it doesn't really. No. So, so we, are, we, I sort of have trained myself and try to train my salespeople to be cognizant of it. When people come in, we don't jump on them and, you know, we wait. And we'll see what someone is standing in front of. Right, let them find their and, piece. And we also yeah. have a, a saying here that there's the right collector for the right piece of art and the right piece of art for the right collector. And so someone will come in, maybe not even having thought about buying a piece of art, but they'll stand in front of something and... and you, I mean, so help me God. I've seen people crying. I've seen people giggling. And I've seen people, you know, slapping their partner on the shoulder saying, we, we have to have this. This is just so perfect for us. Gut thing that happens when people buy art, whether it's a bourgeois thing or not. Buying art is something that people who can afford to buy art do. Um, you know, we're not in Tanzania or in, in a township in South Africa where you know, we're talking about survival. and um, These are first world issues, first world problems. Right? We would get all bitchy and moany because my email is down today because the new router that Time Warner gave me blew. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I'm at, I'm at my wit's end because I can't get fucking email. You know what I'm saying? That's a first world problem. So people who come into an art gallery are, it, it, it's a first world thing, you know? They're going to come in and they're going to say, oh, honey, that's going to look so wonderful in the kids' room or we're having a baby and we want to find something to celebrate the birth of our child. Or I'm going to tell you a very, very funny story about my own two bloody children, okay? They were sitting, my daughter was home from college and my son and her were sitting, the younger son, were sitting at the table eating breakfast. And I was coming down the hall, getting ready to go to work. And they got me good. And I heard my daughter saying, well, if you're going to get the wall, then I'm <laughs> definitely going to get that, that Keith Haring and that Sandro Kia because, I mean, look at the difference. In, and then I walked and I said, are you guys kidding me and, I, and they high-fived each other and they said oh we got you good didn't we you know so <laughs> it's a hilarious story but yeah. it, it really happened and and it happened because we have art in our house and it happened because my little boy when i would walk with him on the street we would look at art and we would look at urban things on the walls and we would look at galleries and we would see things and he would be able to identify you know he would say look, Dad, there's a Basquiat on the wall or there's a, a Keith Haring subway drawing or whatever it is. Whatever, you know, whatever. He would be able to identify things. And I would become quite gratified to know that I was bringing children up who were looking at the world in a broader way. And there's things that are dedicated to them from Ronnie Wood. And, you know, I mean, there's stuff that, 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 that has defined their experience. And I genuinely believe that when people walk into an art gallery 
the bulk of people are not really thinking about buying a piece of art. Some go out, honey, we need to go buy a piece of art for the living room. And they go out to Soho on a Sunday afternoon because they're going to go look for a piece of art. But, or I'll hear people saying, you know, we're buying this. We've had a wall that's been vacant for three years because we haven't found the right piece. Mm -hmm. And this piece resonates for us. And, and so that to me, in the end, is sort of goes back to that, that conversation we were having about what, what is it that makes a person buy a piece of art? I think in the end, a good salesperson facilitates that, who's listened, who, who has been able to overcome the objections. You know, we can't afford it all in one shot. Okay, so don't worry. Make three payments. Or would you like to use our 12-month interest-free deal? Or, you know, I'll hold it for you, you know, you know, on layaway. Or, I mean, I've known you for 20 years. Give me half. Take it now. You'll pay me next month. The, the bottom line is people walk into art galleries most of the time, I think, because it's a fun thing to It's a good date. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I used to say that was the biggest filter we have, which is just the mere fact of who's inside our gallery versus who's not inside our gallery. And yeah, a lot of people come in and it's just that, you know, it's a good date. But even for that date, it's a choice. It's a very unique choice. It is. Lot, and most walk, people don't walk into galleries. And, and those who walk into a specific gallery or another says something else. I will tell you a funny, funny story. On Saturday afternoon, we made a sale to a couple who had a wall that hadn't had a piece of art on since they moved into their apartment three years ago because they couldn't find the right piece of art. And they found something that they loved. And they, it was going above the bed. And at one point in the, the whole sale, he took a pillow off my couch. We took it out of the viewing room and we put it in the natural light so that they could really see the colors the way they wanted to see the, the colors. And then he took a pillow off the couch and he put it on the floor where the painting was and he put his head on the pillow and he lay on the floor of the gallery. <laughs> and I was compelled to go and lie next to him uh -huh. and put my head on his shoulder. And his wife just thought this was hilarious. And, and the point that I'm making is as silly as that was, when they left, he stood at the door and he turned around and he said, I have never had an experience in an art gallery like this in my life. And I said to him, how many art galleries have you been into? And he said, a lot. We've been looking for a piece of art for this wall for a really long time. Thank you very much. Again, I got all goosebumpy and, and I said to the guys who work here, that's what it's about. It's about listening and hearing and facilitating and overcoming whatever problem. What was the main problem? The frame. But, you know, I, I, I always feel, and I'll probably bring this up a zillion times in these conversations because it's an observation that stays large in my mind. I think the one profession that we might be the closest to as art dealers is stand-up comedy. Oh, probably for sure. And and, and I'll tell you That's why. That's hilarious. And the reason why I think that is, is because every time, and I love interviews with stand-up comics, and I've been attracted to, you know, this podcast is partly based upon Mark Maron's podcast, WTF, you know, where he just decided to turn the mic on his own profession. Yeah. And the one thing you keep on hearing consistently in that profession is, they say for the first two years, you're not a professional comic. And the reason is, you know, even though you might be making a living off of it early, 
you're not accepted as being mature because those first two years are required to find your voice. And you can't rush it. It's a process. You got to go up there night after night after night and really experience it. And I, and I think we have that bond with them. I and, think finding your voice as an art dealer is really important. And I think that ex- was like the most perfect example of that, of you talking about laying down beside your <laughs> I, client you know, and putting so your head ri- on the shoulder. It was so ridiculous. But that's your voice. I guess. I mean, that's not just a really cute move. Could you imagine you know? Tony Shafrazi lying down no. on the floor next to his collector and it's so specific to you. I, I don't know if I could pull it off or not, because I don't know if that's sincere to my and internal self. And there were self. people wandering around the gallery, and it turned into this hilarious moment. Right. Like, this happens in an art gallery? Exactly. But it happens in Jeff Jaffe's art gallery, because that's who Jeff Jaffe is. But, you know, but it also occurs to me, and I don't know if you're going to agree with this or not. I think there's some version you will, which is, would you have done that in your first few years in this business? And would and even if you did, do you think you could have really gotten away with it? Yeah, because I don't because I think there's that in between stage too, well, where well, you're like, this is what feels right to me, so, but I'm not comfortable enough in my own shoes still. So this notion of finding yeah. one's voice relative to the the, the 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 comedian thing, I think it's relative to anything in any job that anybody does. I think when you have experience. When you become experienced and good at what you, you become better at what you do when you have experience, particularly if you enjoy what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think if you're, if you fundamentally enjoy what you're doing, like when Michael has a sale and all he wants to come and do is give me a big hug and a high five and like, Oh my God, you know, it says something to me about the enjoyment that he's getting and the pleasure that he's getting out of having interacted with these clients and made this sale and developed this relationship, they don't want to talk to me when they call the gallery. I'm the gallery. They don't want to have a... They're not interested in me. They're interested in Michael. Right. And so Michael, who started off as a, an intern, because I had a little Rachmanis, if people know what Rachmanis is, um, because I felt like I wanted to give this kid a shot, um, has turned into someone who has found his voice, who who can laugh and 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 know when it's appropriate to be funny with collectors and be the stand-up if that's what you want to call it, um, and facilitate a deal so that everybody comes away feeling good, and that to me is sort of a summary, really, of what my business has been historically, is that we all come away feeling good. Mm-hmm. My salesperson comes away feeling like he or she has achieved something. The collector comes away feeling like they've acquired something that's meaningful for, for them. I come away from this knowing that we made some money today and that the gallery was 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 a, a, a vehicle for making people feel good about themselves. And as a consequence, I feel good about what I do. It, it's not always that easy. And, and there are times where you deal with really very difficult people. Uh, it brings up another quick thing about you can't be perfect, right? You make mistakes. Yeah. Things happen. What do you do to mitigate that? How do you make things right? You know, how do you make, how do you fix something? That is also about finding your voice to some degree. So you're absolutely right. How, when, when you fuck up thing and it happens, whether it's a shipping accident or a, the wrong thing happened or a misquoted price, or, things happen. Mm-hmm. It's what you do to fix it. And I, I got an email from somebody recently who said, I will never do business with your company again. <laughs> and I sent an email back to him saying, want to bet? 
And he said, I will never do business with you again. I said, watch. And we did something and the artist came in and we did something that was really special. And lo and behold, three weeks later, he bought something else. So, so this is exactly what I think this whole conversation really is about. Yeah. Is about this ability to recognize that experience is, is important and imparting experience onto younger people so that either a business can grow or whatever happens with that business, that younger people as they come up through it. And whether Mm -hmm. this is a sustainable thing, I don't know whether mid-market art galleries are going to be around for another 20 or 30 years. It's hard to say. But the idea that experience matters, you know, that, that, that somebody with experience is willing to take responsibility and eat it if you got it, or sort of make up for it in a way that is just as pissed off as that person might be, there's just no way that they can say, oh my God, you know, you failed me. Because we have a policy here to make everything right. I I seek 100% customer satisfaction. Is it attainable? I doubt it. But where you can and, and it's able, you're able to, you should. You know, and 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 that that's about finding your voice. You know, it is because everybody has a different way of doing it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, you know, I'm thinking it out as we're talking. I, I think the part that always puts our that has recently put our business in danger over the and I say recently, I mean over the past 15 years yeah. or so, is this whole business has been very dependent upon the idea of having an experience. You know, people can hang posters on their wall and such. Just by the mere fact that they want to have, in quotes, real art means they want to have something very genuine, something with purpose. And usually with that, I think, comes this pursuit for something that's also very real in the pursuing of that, collecting that piece of artwork. And I think that's also why it's critical that people be in very much in contact with their own voice. Because when they're representing the artwork, if they're not 100% genuine, not just honest, but really offering a true, genuine human experience, then somewhere, somehow they sense that. Well, I think, I think clients, collectors are not stupid. No, they, I don't they, think they it's they an intellect this, thing. They, I think it's an emotional I don't, thing. I, I don't even mean it from an emotional, yeah. intellectual point of view. I, I, I mean it from this point of view where I know when you're bullshitting me. Right. You know? And if you're bullshitting me, I'm not having an experience. No. Other than being bullshitted, obviously. But this isn't a real notable human connection that I'm having. And you're the conduit between them and the art and the artist, right? So you've you've broken that. And what I mean about where the industry is going, you know, I was, this is very appropriate to the moment because I was literally having this conversation upstairs, right? And he was telling me about the one thing he came away from Art Expo being really excited about. And it was learning about these devices that go into galleries that you can put up near the artwork that allows you to bring your iPhone next to it or, you know, Android device or whatever, and it'll give you information about the art that you're looking at. Yeah, we have that here already. Yeah, and my immediate thought was, well, that's just one more thing, removing the art dealer and making it a non-human experience, making well, we, it a non-experience. The question here is, what what does that technology do? I te- I'm doing it as a test for somebody, as a favor. Yeah, I know of a gallery in the West Coast testing it out too. And and the truth of the matter is, you're 100% right. I'm doing it. I think it's a total fucking waste of time. I just went through 
Thank you for that honesty on it, because I, I, I think that is the honest answer. And, you know, I'm, well, although you could have told me otherwise, uh, I just went on the road with a road show for art. And they're showing art of a celebrity. This is John Lennon. I'll just say who the artist was. And they filled their art walls with quotes and information about John Lennon to go with the art. And I have to confess, this is an idea that I've had for a long time, which is, you know, give a traveling art show a kind of museum presentation to it. It was horrible. Yeah. It was so, I had suddenly got a flashback to something I had forgotten about for 25 years that I went through when I was a young art dealer. And there was a piece of artwork in our gallery. It was the only piece of artwork that they had a story written and mounted in a frame that went next to it. And I used to hide it when the owners would go away. Because I hated that damn thing. Because people would come in, they would stick their face into it and read it. Instead of Looking having a conversation with the person who can tell them not just what's in there, but a whole contextual story. It's funny. We have an artist, yeah. we have an artist who, who uses a lot of text in his paintings. And so the rule in this gallery is that when the consultant and the potential buyer mm-hmm. are interfacing with the painting, if it's a couple, I'll ask one of the couple to read the text to the other. Or I'll read it to them. And so what we're doing at that point is, is sort of closing that circle of, you know, you, we, we talk about a bubble here, by the way. I don't know if that's, uh, this is a good opportunity to talk about the bubble. I'd love to hear about it. What I try to teach consultants here is that when you're dealing with someone, you're creating a bubble. You're in that bubble with that collector and that piece of art. And that bubble is impenetrable. And when it gets penetrated for something silly like, someone butting in, uh, an inexperienced person needing you for something and asking you something that's unrelated and your focus gets thrown, or the bookkeeper calls you and says, I need to speak to you. That bubble gets completely burst. And that sense of well-being, that sense of, of trust, that sense of whatever it is that you're, you're trying to develop between you, the art, and the collector, sort of can be destroyed in, in, in a split second. Which is why viewing rooms are actually a, a, a good place to show art sometimes. Because we know that when the door is closed, that's forbidden. You just don't go in there. Yeah. You just don't. No, it's an intimate space. It's a very intimate space. But you can c- create intimate spaces on the main floor of a gallery if you draw your collector in, you know, properly. The thing that attracts people to artwork is something that's strictly emotionally based. So the person who sells that has to have credibility in that emotional space. I will tell you and, something, if I may, on that level. Yeah, sure. There isn't an artist in this gallery that I do not have a piece of in my own house. And I, that is intentional. Not because I just find a piece that I love. I mean, I will buy, I will put a piece that I love. But I own a piece of art by every single artist that we represent. And as an owner there's a certain level of credibility that sort of emanates out of that conversation. I, it's not like I'm proud of it. How can I sell you something and try and get you to buy something if I'm not sold on it? So I pick pieces of art by artists that we represent, and I have one in my house, in my little collection. Well, let me ask you this as we're kind of getting into the home stretch here. So 
you probably gotten a better sense for what it is I'm doing here now just by participating in it. If, if you were in my shoes, if you were out there interviewing people in our profession, and by the way, I plan on not just not just gallery owners and such. I'm going to interview guys on the floor, uh, brokers, PR people, all the different angles of our business, and all the different strata too. You know, from street level up. Um, what we, what do you think you'd be after? And by that, I mean. What questions do you think you'd want to look for answers on? This is an industry that operates on lots of levels. We know it does. Mm -hmm. There are people who are established, well-loved, recognized art dealers and galleries. There are lesser-known brokers. There are crooks and thieves. There are all kinds of ranges of whatever exists in this industry as there is in most industries. And the thing that I would probably like to find is within the sort of ups and downs or the ranges of what exists in this industry is where that sort of center line runs, this consistency that I'm talking about. What's the common thread? What what keeps an art dealer, why, I mean, I could have done many things. What is it that tends to be the thing that resonates over and over and over again? And I hazard to guess that when you've done 50 of these interviews, you're going to find some of that consistency of people saying it's a rewarding place to be. It makes people happy. It's a, it's a, a way to make money that, that is on merchandise that people don't really need but provides a certain amount of joy in people's lives. And I think you'll find a certain consistency that good art dealers understand the process that artists go through. Because in the end, this industry does not exist, period, does not exist without artists. And the ability to find artists that are meaningful, who resonate on a certain level, who cut through barriers and borders, politics, whatever it is that that artists do, is a universal trait. It's something in every country, in every world, that you're going to find. Desire to make art. And I get goosebumps again. Human beings make art. We dance, we, we sing we paint, we draw, we write, we do things that um, address a part of this thing that we are as animals that is creativity. And other people in our species relate to it and can identify with it on a certain level. And I think that that consistent thing that makes us human um, is the thing that defines this industry because we could not have art galleries and art dealers and art auctions and secondary market this and tertiary market that without artists. It just, it's that simple. And I'm grateful for that. I'm totally grateful for having been able to sustain a business for as long as I have based on the creativity yeah. of others. But can we you say know? it's a symbiotic relationship? It is symbiotic. Yeah. Um, but, because the, but there are millions of artists who don't sell art, who don't sell their art. I have a policy. Ivan Karp. Do you remember Ivan Karp from OK Harris Galleries? No. 
Okay, so O.K. Harris was a, a, a like a a rock solid first one of the early Soho galleries on West Broadway, and I was privileged to meet Ivan a couple of times. He passed away recently. Um, well, not so recently. He passed away, and one of the things that Ivan Karp told me when I first met him, he said, "Oh, you're the guy who opened the Pop Gallery up up on." Uh, near Houston Street, I said, yes, I am. And I just wanted to tell you that I opened that gallery in a way because I admire so much of how you've run your business, which was for many, many, many years. And he said, kid, going to give you one piece of advice. And I said, okay, what is it? He said, look at every single thing that somebody wants to show you. <laughs> and I can tell you that this gallery yeah. gets thousands of requests every year to look at art. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm not as good as, a, as I should be, but I'm pretty good at it. Um, eventually, I respond to everybody on some level or another, even if it's an email saying, thank you for submitting your art. There's a place out there for you. It's not for us, but you know, that kind of thing. Because I have the I exact same it. policy. I will look yeah. at anything. Yeah. At anything. No, I think they deserve that. You know, I'll, I'll tell you, one of my artists who became very successful in his own right, one of his favorite stories to tell is when he was just getting his start and looking for some sort of representation, gallery or otherwise, had the naive audacity to call up Leo Castelli's gallery. And he got an appointment. And... Leo sat down and went through his stuff. And, you know, it was way too early and it certainly wasn't the right kind of art for him, but actually gave him some real feedback and such. But besides the particulars, that moment that he got, just the five minutes of allowing Leo Castelli to go through his book and Leo Castelli being a decent person yeah. and treating him like another like professional. He treated him like a man. Exactly. Leo had that He's The man is 75 years old right yeah. now. That probably happened 30-something years ago, yeah. and he still tells the story. Like, yeah. yeah. And, and remember I said a little bit of a while ago there was another story about another deal I wanted to tell you. It was about Leo. Uh -huh. And the two things I wanted to say was when I was in art school, we used to laugh amongst each other and would say, Leo says gold frames are in. <laughs> so, you know, that kind of making fun of the art world, you know, as art students, sort of realizing that, not realizing at the time that at some point, if you want to be an artist and you want to be in the world of art, you're going to need an art dealer. Uh -huh. It's a symbiotic thing. I can't be an art dealer without artists. But I will never forget Leo Castelli. We had put something up in the window. And Leo would shuffle down West Broadway to the 420 building, which he was aging. And he would stand in front of the pop gallery and he'd look in our window and he would wait for me to see him. And then he would just shake his head and I'd wave. What do you think he was thinking? I don't know what he was thinking. I think he was probably thinking like, hey, you know, what are you doing? You know, like... Um, what do you think? You're another Ivan Karp. What do you? Uh -huh. what, what do you? You're a new new guy on the block, or don't get into this business. It's you know what I, I never knew. I think what that he was might thinking. be closer, and probably closer. Or I think it could also be like 
Yeah, you live long enough and you see it all. More, more will show up. <laughs> I know, I know. Here's here's the next young Turks. I know. I know. <laughs> I think that's probably what it was. And it happened a couple of times, but he would always make sure he caught my eye. He wouldn't leave until he caught my eye. I'm going to tell you though, the the one time that he did that, he caught my eye and he didn't shake his head. He nodded his head. Mm-hmm. That was the last time I saw Leo Castelli. No kidding. He he got it. He had to have known you were at least doing the job and recognized that. He, he had to have, and and yeah. you know, I I it, it's a story that that I tell periodically. But he, you know, three or four times he would shake his head, and the last time I saw him, he nodded his head, and that was that was it. I think he died maybe I don't know a week or a month later, whatever it was. War stories and and good stories and. Well, thank you very much. So I really appreciate the time. It's my pleasure. I, it, over the years of having worked with you guys and knowing you and tolerating me, uh, you know. And you tolerating us. Well, you know, it's a symbiotic <laughs> relationship. <laughs> All right, mate. Take care. Sure. So what do you think? Was it worth two parts? Yeah, of course it was worth two parts. Could you have possibly have missed that second part? I mean, the things he gets into, some of the details of what it is to motivate, to hire, to train, to manage a sales staff. Those are the things that anybody in our business who wants to make a success out of running a gallery really needs to know. And anybody who's done it well does know. There's a There's a graduate course in those words. But the part that I love the most was that towards the end, we got down to a story about one collector. One collector, that that one where he laid on the floor with him, laying on a pillow, looking up at the art to assimilate what it would be like looking at that painting from the bed in his own home. And the reason I love that is, despite all those things we do, in preparation to having this business, to supporting our art galleries, to managing a staff, to bringing in the art that works and the art, getting rid of the art that doesn't, whatever the mechanics are of it, all those things that Jeff talked about, that none of it matters if it doesn't work in the place where the rubber hits the road. That in the end, it all comes down to one art dealer talking to one collector or collectors, in this case a couple, and that their words resonate with them, that their actions make them comfortable and feel right, that in the hands of that art dealer representing that one particular piece of art. And if it doesn't, if the words don't make sense and the art doesn't look right and it doesn't get the specific emotional response that's so charged that it should cause them to want to make a purchase and have that thing in their home for the rest of their life, well, well, the rest of it's meaningless. Whatever the system is to keeping up to date with your client list, however it is you hire or fire your people or pick your art or don't pick your art, whatever that is, that doesn't mean a lick if it doesn't work in that very moment. And what I loved here was that Jeff was able to walk us down that incredible path and understand in the way he told that story 
that in the end, it had to end there. He had to tell us a story about one place and one time where that works, where that all comes together. Because it's nothing more than just a string of those things happening at the end of that road that make for the successful art businesses that we run. Thanks again, Jeff. I really appreciated what was a fantastic interview. I hope we get to have you back on again at some time in the future, maybe to focus on some other topics. So until next time, I hope you come and join me here at the Art Dealer Bar one more time. Enjoy yourself a little bit of a cocktail, pull up a chair, and get an opportunity to sit in on yet another fantastic conversation with another fantastic art selling professional. Good night to you, my art dealers. Good night.